Thanks, Ed. We almost had no sermon today. There were some uh, mischievous people stealing my sermon from the chair while we were singing. But uh, (laughs) good managed to prevail over evil because evil is dumb. Where is that from? I don't know. It's a quote from a film. But um, Well, uh, the, the Bible reading, uh, the, the passage that we're thinking about uh, this morning is the passage that uh, Ed just prayed through for us then. And as we go along, uh, you'll, you should have it on a handout uh, and you might like to follow that uh, as we go through the sermon. But today we're uh, continuing our series of questions for God. Uh, If you could ask one question, what would that question be? We've spent a month or so as a church asking people, friends, family, colleagues, that question. And the answers that people have given have been really interesting uh, and quite challenging for us to think through, I think. Uh, And also, it's been useful to understand uh, the questions that people have about God. Uh, A number of the questions that people have had are things like, Why am I here? Why is life so hard? And we've looked at those over the last few weeks. But one of the key questions that people also have is, why doesn't God prove that he exists? Or how can we know that God is real? Or why doesn't God come down and show us, sort of prove to us that there's only one religion and what that religion is? Why doesn't God talk directly to us? Why doesn't God prove that he exists? And what we want to do this morning is to try and see what the Bible has to say about that question. What does the Bible have to say about the existence of God? Now there is in fact behind that question, why doesn't God prove he exists, there's a hidden assumption. And the hidden assumption is that God hasn't made any attempt to show that he exists. Or at least that God hasn't Uh, given sufficient evidence that he exists or that God hasn't spoken to us. But the surprising answer that the Bible gives and the surprising answer that Psalm 19 gives is that God has given evidence, given clues, if you like, that he exists. So Psalm 19 begins with those words, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. The first half of that Psalm, that ancient poem or ancient song, the first half of that uh, psalm talks about how the world and the universe and everything speak about the existence of God and about the wonder of God. The universe and the world speak. They testify to God. They don't testify with words, but their testimony, their existence, if you like, their magnificence, spreads throughout the world and and says something about God. So every person in the world who looks up at the sky can see evidence for God. The earth hurtling through space around the sun, that fixed course, is evidence for the existence of God. The stars and their extravagant beauty. The stars exploding at the farthest reaches of the universe. 
Meteors, comets hurtling through space are evidence for the existence of God. Every time you look at another human being, you can see evidence for the existence of God, the stunning complexity of human life. Every time you receive the love of another human being, you taste, if you like, evidence for the existence of God, the beauty of human relationships in all their splendid variety. Now, you might think that the writer of Psalm 19 was an ignorant, unscientific buffoon uh, who was writing such a long time ago that he couldn't possibly have known how the modern developments of science had made belief in God untenable. Uh, He was, you know, he was ignorant. And so he thought, well, uh, if there's a world that I look up at, if there's a sky that I look up at, uh, it must be God. Whereas uh, the modern person looks up at the universe and thinks, well, isn't science wonderful? You might think that science has made belief in God untenable, unlikely, But actually, the interesting thing about modern science is that it's quite the reverse. Actually, modern science has made belief in God more and more likely rather than less and less likely. A good example of that is what's called uh, the fine-tuning of the universe. So that idea refers to the idea, uh, refers to the, the concept that our world, our universe, our Earth, is incredibly finely tuned to support not only life but advanced life, human life. And the more and more modern science advances, the more and more people discover just how precisely tuned the world really is. Let me give two uh, examples of that. Now this might be a bit complicated but I think it's helpful because I think it It helps us to understand how cutting-edge science makes God more plausible rather than less plausible. And I think also, when we catch a glimpse of it, it also opens our eyes to see the beauty and the wonder of God because we understand how God has made our world as incredible as it really is. So here are two examples of the fine-tuning of the world. There's four fundamental forces in nature according to the standard model of physics. So you'd know one of them, gravity, the gravitational force. Everyone knows that. You've probably heard of the electromagnetic force, so how electricity and magnetism interact. The other two that nobody's ever heard of and no one really knows what they are are the um, weak and strong nuclear forces. So there's four fundamental forces in the standard model of physics. What's interesting is that if those forces weren't in precisely the balance that they are, our world couldn't exist as we know it. So one physicist has estimated that if the ratio between the strong nuclear force and the electromagnetic force, if the ratio of those two things, if the balance of them was out by 1 in 10 to the 16, that is 1 in 10,000 billion, if it was out by one ten thousand billionth, then no stars could have formed in the universe. Even more astonishingly, if the uh, balance between the electromagnetic force constant and the gravitational force constant were out by one in ten to the forty, that is 
one in 10,000 trillion, trillion, trillion. Right? That's one in one with 40 zeros. If that was out, our universe would not exist as we know it either. That's an astonishingly small number. Uh, I don't know how many people went to the recent lecture by Hugh Ross, and if they did, if it made any sense, uh, it was, I think most of us there were sort of going, what is, what's going on? But anyway, he, he, he estimated there were 562 parameters, both in the, co- in, uh, in the cosmos, that is in physics and also in biology, that need to be precisely tuned for life to be as we know it. In other words, the probability of life being as it is is incredibly tiny, which is sort of another way of saying that our world looks uncannily as though it has been designed, created for human existence. Or as the writer of Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. But not only does the universe speak about the existence of God, that is, the fact of God's existence, the beauty of the universe speaks about the beauty of God. Not the Hindu god of war or the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods who were always having fights with each other, but we have a beautiful universe which speaks of a beautiful and elegant and ordered God. Now, you know I love mathematics, and uh, I can never avoid an opportunity to speak about it. I spoke about it a few weeks ago. But one of the other interesting things about maths, yes, one of the other interesting things about mathematics is that the correct solutions in mathematics are not only correct, they're not only right, but they're beautiful, they're elegant. In fact, almost to the extent that people know that they've got the right solution if it's elegant and if it's beautiful. How can that be if mathematics is just a human idea, if it's just something that we've made up? Why should it be not only true but also beautiful? The uh, physicist and Nobel Prize winner Eugene Wigner wrote a famously uh, famous paper which he, called, which he titled The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics, in which he asked the question, why is it that mathematics is so peculiarly useful in describing our world? It seems unlikely. It's almost as if our world was not only designed, but that it was designed for us to discover. Not only was it designed, but it was designed for us to discover. It was designed for us to see the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. Psalm 19 says that God has given us evidence for his existence in creation. But Psalm 19 then goes on to talk about God's words in the Bible. So it says of God's uh, word, if you like, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. There's lots of important things, lots of true things that we could say about the Bible, but one of the aspects that the writer of this ancient poem picks up on is the Bible's goodness, its radiance, its desirability, its wisdom. That is, you can read the Bible and see that it's wise, see that it's true, see that it fits reality. What the Bible says about the world and God is not just truthful, it's good. God's words in the Bible give joy to the heart. And maybe you've tested those words and found them to be words which give joy. They are sure words. So you might have tested those words and discovered for yourself, like this writer did, that those words in the Bible are sure words, that they're precious words, that they're sweeter than honey, that they make sense of life, that they make sense of your world and the world that we live in, and that they make good sense. We don't often see the truth of that because biblical principles are so ingrained in our culture, in Western culture that is, that we don't see how true it is that those biblical principles are good principles. We don't see them as those principles as biblical principles. So, to take an example, the idea that human beings have equal dignity and honour is an idea from the Bible. It doesn't come from the theory of evolution because evolutionary theory says that the strongest have the most dignity, that the fittest survive, and they are the most important in the world. One of my lecturers at Bible College had been a missionary in Africa and he used to say that as you drove around and you travelled from place to place, you could see, you could tell the Christian villages because they would be tidy and well-functioning. The villages which didn't have Christianity were often in social turmoil. That's not just a Christian observation. Other people have observed that as well. Uh, You might have heard me read this before, but it's worth quoting at some length, I think, because it helps us to see the goodness of God's words in the Bible. Uh, there's an article, there was an article written in the Times, in the London Times, by a man named Matthew Paris, who's an atheist. And the title of his article was, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. And this is what he wrote. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, 
government projects and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. We had friends who were missionaries, and as a child I stayed often with them. I also stayed alone with my little brother in a traditional rural African village. In the, city we had work, in the city, we had working for us Africans who had been converted and were strong believers. The Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to me to be missing in traditional African life. At 24, travelling by land across the continent reinforced this impression. Whenever we entered a territory worked by missionaries, we had to acknowledge that something changed in the faces of the people we passed and spoke to. Something in their eyes the way they approached you direct, man-to-man, without looking down or away. They had not become more deferential towards strangers, in some ways less so, but more open. This time in Malawi it was the same. I met no missionaries, but instead I noticed that a handful of the most impressive African members of the pump aid team, that is the aid group that was working there, were privately strong Christians. It would suit me to believe that their honesty, diligence and optimism in their work was unconnected with personal faith. Their work was secular, but surely affected by what they were. What they were was in turn influenced by a conception of man's place in the universe that Christianity had taught. Well, it's a a long quote, but the idea, I think, is interesting. An atheist who, as he looks at Africa, can see that God's word is good, sweeter than honey, more delightful than pure gold. Well, we have the testimony of creation We have the testimony of the Bible and its goodness. The last testimony that we'll look at this morning is Jesus himself. We have in the New Testament gathered together four separate ancient documents, accounts of the life of Jesus, and each of those accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, each of those accounts testify that Jesus is God, God himself come into our world as a human being. You see, God did come to prove that he exists, and he did so in Jesus Christ. Jesus did extraordinary miracles. He healed people. He knew what people were thinking deep in their hearts. He made food enough for thousands of people from a few loaves of bread and a few fish. He walked on water. He calmed storms. He raised the dead. And he himself rose from the dead, having been crucified and buried in a tomb. In Jesus, God has proved that he exists. 
Now, it might not be the proof that we want, of course, but that doesn't actually matter. So suppose that uh, there's a crime that goes to court and there are ten eyewitnesses that appear before the judge or the magistrate or whatever, and uh, these ten eyewitnesses say, yes, this person committed that crime, I saw that person commit the crime. And at the end of the case, the magistrate gets up uh, and he says, I find the defendant not guilty. And his reasoning is, well, I didn't want eyewitness accounts. Uh, I wanted DNA evidence. Uh, you know, how, how do I know that those people weren't lying? I can only trust DNA evidence. You would say, well, that's unreasonable. Or what if he said, well, no, I don't believe DNA evidence. Uh, it can be misinterpreted. Uh, what I want is video evidence. Uh, video evidence will, con- will convince me. Or what if he said, no, no, actually, I won't believe video evidence because videos can be edited uh, and they can be doctored. So what I want is not video evidence, but I won't convict this man unless I see the crime for myself. Well, you'd say, that's a bit ridiculous because the crime has already happened, hasn't it? It would be unreasonable for a judge to determine a case on the basis of what evidence he would like to have rather than what evidence he has before him. What evidence we want to have for the existence of God is largely immaterial. What matters is whether the evidence that we have before us is convincing or not. In other words, to reword the question, why doesn't God prove he exists? We could reword it. Why doesn't God prove he exists in the manner that I want him to? Now, the reason that we find it hard to appreciate the evidence for God's existence is deeper, and Jesus gets to the heart of it in that last passage on the handout. Now, if you've got that handout, you might like to turn to that. And... Just, we'll just read this, this parable that Jesus gives. So it's an imaginary story, but to make a point. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was a, laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. 
Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? It's the rich man in hell who wishes that he could get out. And when he realises that he can't, he says, well, if I can't get out of here myself, at least, at least maybe send messengers to my family so that they might avoid this situation. Send someone to warn them. Best of all, send someone come back from the dead. Then they'll believe. To which Abraham replies, they already have enough evidence in the Bible. In the Old Testament, in Moses and the prophets, and if someone, even if someone rises from the dead... They still won't believe. They don't believe what they have. Why would they believe other evidence as well? What Jesus is saying is that it's not for lack of proof that people don't believe that God exists. We have the testimony of creation. We have the testimony of the Bible. We have the testimony of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. But people still are not convinced. Not because there isn't enough evidence. But Jesus says because... People don't want to be convinced. Uh, In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller quotes an atheist by the name of Thomas Nagel, who is a surprisingly honest man, it would turn out. And he talks about his own fear of religion. He says, I'm talking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience being subject to this fear myself. Here it is. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Isn't that interesting? We like to believe that we weigh the evidence impartially, but that's not true. As Thomas Nagel says, he doesn't come to the question impartially. He doesn't want God to exist. He doesn't want the world to be like that. That's the same diagnosis of humanity that the Apostle Paul gave in his letter to the Romans 2,000 years ago. He writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain in creation. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, 
and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that human beings are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking became futile and foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Our question might be, why doesn't God prove that he exists? But the Bible invites us to ask another question, which is whether God actually has. Whether God has proved that he exists. I've said it uh, to people before, but I think a useful question in starting to, to ask that question is to start off by asking, well, what evidence would it take to convince me that men landed on the moon? Or what evidence would it take to convince me that the Holocaust really happened? There's lots of people in the world who deny the moon landing and the Holocaust. But what would it take to convince me that those things really happened? And having established that, to then ask the question, what kind of evidence has God given us that he exists? So it's easy to be sceptical. It's easy to be unreasonably sceptical and not to believe anything. It's much harder to be thoughtfully sceptical and to work out what kind of evidence makes sense to believe. Well, why doesn't God prove that he exists? The Bible says that he has. The Bible says that the universe testifies to the existence of God, that the Bible testifies to the existence of God, and that the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus testify to the existence of God and, indeed, to the love of God as well. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for your incredible love to us that you have made such a rich and wonderful universe, a universe full of beauty and majesty, a universe which is not only beautiful but understandable and discoverable that we can learn about, that we can look at and enjoy that we can look at and see your glory. Lord, thank you for your amazing love in giving us and speaking to us in the Bible. Thank you that those words are good. And Lord, many of us have tasted that and seen the goodness of your words, have tasted the goodness of the gospel, that Christ died for us. Lord, thank you for your amazing love in sending Jesus to us so that we would know you and be reconciled to you in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And Lord, if any of us are struggling to believe the truth of your existence and the truth of the gospel, Lord, we ask that you would help us to test all things and to see the truth, to not be afraid to examine the evidence 
And we ask that you would give us the clarity of mind and heart to having examined the truth, be able to receive it with joy. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.